Our story begins here with coffee. Is this coffee? No. This is coffee. Good coffee. Brewed into a beverage that is consumed in the hundreds of millions of cupfuls each day. A tradition that reaches deeply into the secrets of aroma and body and taste. Greetings all. Welcome to another episode of Prerequisites, the podcast devoted to spotlighting the great research and teaching being done in the MSU Department of English. I'm your host, Justice Neeland, Professor of English and Department Chair. So in this episode, we have a really wonderful chance to learn more about the work being done in our English education program. I sit down with my colleague, Dr. Lamar Johnson, to talk about his truly visionary new book titled Critical Race, English Education, New Visions, New Possibilities, which was just published with Rutledge in their National Council of Teachers of English series. Dr. Johnson is Associate Professor of Language and Literacy, for linguistic and racial diversity in our department. Lamar is interested in how the complex intersections of race, language, literacy, and education play out in English language arts classrooms and how those classrooms can become sites for racial justice. Lamar is the co-editor of the book collection, African Diaspora Literacy, The Heart of Transformation in K-12 Schools and Teacher Education, and today we have a chance to talk about his great new monograph. So this is a really wide ranging conversation, but I think it'll give you a great sense of the quality of work being done in English education at MSU. It was truly a treat to have the chance to talk to Lamar about his bold approach to English education. Enjoy. Recently of the book we're gonna be talking about today, Critical Race, English Education, New Visions, New Possibilities, just out with Rutledge in their NCTE, National Council of Teachers of English series, specifically the Rutledge Research Series. So first of all, Lamar, congratulations on this tremendous achievement. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Justice. I really appreciate it. And much love to you for having me and supporting me and actually you know, upholding the book. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. It's such a visionary project, and I'm, I'm delighted to have the chance to talk with you about it. So um, I, I thought I would just start, because I use the term visionary, when we say that, we also think about you know, a timely book, and I think a, an urgent and deeply necessary book. And so I thought uh, I would invite you to start by just saying a little bit about the motivations for the project. What brought this project about? When did it begin? and what was inspiring you to write it? That's a beautiful question. And I've been definitely meditating on that for a few days. And I went back and forth about when did this start for me? And so let me just say this a few days ago, I've been waiting almost three months for my complimentary books to actually arrive. And when they actually arrived, I was like, this is the first time I actually get to hold my book and like feel like, oh, I actually wrote a book. And I was like, well, when did this process start for me? And I would say back in 1996, when you know I was a third grader, and I remember getting my mom's car, we were getting ready to go, you know, to the mall to shop or get food. It was a weekend, it was like a Saturday. And I had my black journal with me. And I remember just like writing different like love letters to people who I thought I'll, you know, like as a kid or trying to write my own song lyrics. So that's when the first time I saw myself as a writer to be honest with you. So my story started a long time ago. So I've been writing this book, you know, for years now, and it has definitely changed and evolved over time. And so that was one moment, but also the moment of when I was in the fifth grade and I first had my first encounter with racism. And so, and how that impacted me as a young, young black male growing up in the South. And then from that moment forward, meeting, you know, black teachers who impacted me where they gave me books where I saw myself within the characters, uh, the language the characters were using, and they those teachers really affirmed me. So at a very young age, I knew I wanted to go into education. I knew I wanted to be a teacher, and I knew what type of teacher I wanted to be. Of course, I didn't have a language that I have now, but I knew I wanted to be a teacher who actually, you know, honored and humanized, you know, Black and Brown voices. 
And so this book for me started a long time ago. When I think about the people who are my first teachers, you know, it's my family. It's my mom, it's my dad, it's my grandma, it's my aunts, it's my cousins, my sisters, my brother, you know, you know, they are my first teachers. So I take them with me everywhere I go. So as I began to write this book, you know, when I actually started writing this book it was actually in 2017, when I came to California for Labor Day uh, weekend, I was at the beach and I was just writing. And it was beautiful to see how this book came to a close now that I came back to California. And that's when I submitted the final chapter. So, you know, this book has definitely come full circle. And for me, this has been definitely a spiritual journey. Well, congratulations on that. And I have to say, I mean, I know how amazing it is to actually hold the book in your hands as a physical object. It's such amazing. a beautiful thing when that happens. So I'm, I'm so happy for you um, to have had that experience. Can I just say, because sometimes I'm like, did I write that? Because I have to sit down and read <laughs> there it. Like, is. Oh, this is good. I wrote that. And yes. so even thinking about when I've said things three years ago that I didn't even remember I actually said. So just sitting down actually to actually enjoy my book without having to, you know, it's different when you're writing a book and you're in the thick of it. So you're reading it and you're also talking to like editors and, you know, publishers. It's different. But now to actually have the book in my hand to sit back and enjoy it, I'm actually loving, I actually do love the book. I, I do love it. And have you had a moment to, to, to unwrap it and, and sort of photograph yourself, video yourself unwrapping okay. it and get that on social? So I did do it in my parents' house. My parents ordered like 27 books. <laughs> And so I used that moment to actually do like an unwrapping to actually hold the books for those other people's books. And my sister took pictures of me in video. So I do have those. And actually the books came on Christmas Eve. So Christmas morning. Oh, nice. You know, in my family house, I was able to actually sign those books and it just felt good. It was once again, it was all the universe and it aligned perfectly. What amazing, amazing timing. I also love the way, you know, you have narrated the way the journey of this book really began, started as early as the third grade for you. And one of the things that I wanna have a chance to talk about is how sort of um, carefully and, and you know, experimentally you weave your personal experiences into the scholarly work of the, of the project. And that leads to some like really dazzling kind of formal experimentation in the forms of the love letters, which we're gonna have a chance to talk about. But before we get there, maybe we can just step back and let me ask you about the title and about this new framework and methodology that you're proposing, Critical Race English Education. I know, of course, it's the work of this whole brilliant big book to talk that through, to work that out for us as readers, and you define and redefine it over the course of the book. But for our listeners, just give us a sense of what Critical Race English Education is at its heart. Critical Race English Education, at, it, at its heart, it gives us glimpses into Black futures. It allows us to honor the humanity of our Black um, youth in classrooms, particularly English language arts classrooms. Critical race English education, which also I call uh, Cree. Cree actually is undergirded in the Black rage, uh, Black love and joy and the radical imagination. We have to begin to think about how do you begin to create the world that is not yet, but the world that we all demand and deserve. And so when we think about building this world where racism, sexism, linguistic violence, xenophobia, where those things do not exist, uh, Cree is actually grounded in that. You have to work towards that. And so when it comes to Cree, you have to think about what does it mean to have like a Black-centered English language arts curriculum within K-12 spaces, but also in higher educational spaces. But I also believe Cree looks differently for different people. So the way I use Cree as a black male may not be a way that you know another professor or teacher use uh, actually uses Cree, because it also depends on like who you are, right, and your positionality and what you actually bring to that space. So the work around Cree is not a, cook a cookie cutter way of how to do it. It's not a how-to guide. Once again, it's also very much spiritual too. You have to go through this rebirth and be born again. You just can't pick up you know this book and think that you're going to go in your classroom and teach like this tomorrow. Granted, it's very practical from the beginning to the end. I give you examples of what I've done and what you can do. But once again, if you haven't really sat with yourself and done an internal soul work, then you're not going to really um, carry out Cree the way it's supposed to be carried out. You know, one of the things that um, struck me about the introduction in particular was your emphasis on you know, this is not going to be easy to, to do yeah. this kind of work. And you kind of address your reader and you say a version of what you just said, right? This is this is not for the faint of heart, I think is your yeah. quote. And this is gonna require some consistent soul work over time. Um, and uh, I think it really sets the reader up for, you know, the experience of, of, of the text. And again, I wanna to get to those formal and experimental 
moments. But one thing I wanted to, a way I wanted to frame it and ask you if this is fair, it seems like there's both in your approach to critical race, English education, a uh, strongly critical dimension. That is, this is a practice of criticality on the yeah. one hand. And as you indicated in your response, there's also this praxis oriented dimension. You use the phrase action oriented dimension. You're giving edu your educators, your readers, administrators, concrete strategies um, for redressing what you, you know, describe through the, the critical dimension. And I wanna sort of work through both sides of that, both the, the sort of critical dimension and then the praxis or the, or the action oriented side. Um, and I just want to invite you to say a little bit more to start with about the critique. You, you mentioned at, at a couple of points in the book how school curricula have changed very little since you finished high school and how difficult that is to, to grapple with and how the curriculum continues to perpetuate forms of anti-Black racism. So if you would lay out that sort of the, the critical dimension of critical race. I think the... Uh... The enslavement of Black people, right? We've seen that throughout history, throughout times, right? How they have been repackaged, like uh, same suit, but a different bowl. And when I talk to my grandparents and when I talk to my great aunts, people went to school like in the 60s, right? In the 70s. And they're talking about how when they were in classrooms, the curriculum that they received, how teachers treated them, treated them and how other white students treated them. Fast forward to like my parents' uh, generation, but then even my generation, those stories are still the same. I was still given certain texts that my mom had to read, like The Great Gatsby, To Kill a Mockingbird, these canonical texts that didn't have anything to do with me in a particular way. Granted, I love literature, so I understood I could, commit, I could make a connection with those particular things, right, when I'm reading those books. But think about other Black kids who sit in those spaces who don't even make those connections with them because they see the anti-Black racism and how prevalent it is in those classroom spaces. So I believe when we give students, you know, books where they don't see themselves, where their language is devalued, that kills their spirit, their soul, their humanity. That's the linguistic violence. And so we think about how the pedagogical violence, when we think about the ways we teach students in you know, like K-12 spaces and in higher educational spaces, some of our pedagogies actually, when, they, when those things don't align with our students and their humanity, that's damaging to them. And so we're perpetuating whiteness and we know how whiteness operates. So we see that how whiteness is actually permeated throughout our curricular decisions and pedagogical practices. But if you're not critical and you don't do that deep soul work, you can miss that and perpetuate um, that racial violence. So you think about, you know, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, how these people were killed outside in the streets, that same violence permeate classroom spaces, it bleeds into classrooms and students are also being killed spiritually in classroom spaces because teachers lack the criticality. And I think in order to really know how to unearth and unpack the curriculum and your pedagogy, you have to sit with the self. And, and sometimes that work, it, it, it will look ugly. When you have to hold the mirror to your soul and really unpack some things and sit with it, but that's what the beauty of being at the seat of consciousness and at, at the seat of self. In order to really do this work, you have to sit there because if you don't do that, you won't know how to go back now and let me remix this. Let, how do I begin to add in, you know, Drake in the classroom? How do I begin to add in some Alicia Keys to do this unit? You want to talk about Shakespeare? Well, maybe you could just your theme could be, you know, teenage love affair. I can't add in some Drake. I can't add in some Alicia Keys. I can add in some TV shows, some movies, some young adult novels, some children's literature, some artwork to actually have these real world conversations. But if you don't think that way, you don't have that those creative skills, then you're gonna you're gonna miss you're gonna miss the mark. Yeah, I wonder if you could say a little. I mean, you, you do such an amazing job throughout the book of, of describing, you know, your the, the different sort of examples of curricular structures that you've encountered, both from your you know when you were a student and then when you were in graduate school and beginning to, you know, to, to learn from you know a, a graduate you know a, a professor and then your your first. Um, uh, teaching experience. And, and the one that I was really struck by was, I think it's the, the instance you just mentioned, which is, I believe, in chapter four, where you're talking about um, a certain kind of curriculum that you were given uh, yeah. for a, a sort of writing and reading workshop and, and what that looked like when you kind of inherited it and then how you uh, reworked it and spun it in your own way. And I think the Drake example was was part of that. So say a little bit about that curriculum as yeah, you inherited it and how that's kind of symptomatic of 
what you're talking about in the book. It was my first year teaching. And I remember it was like maybe June, June or July, I think it was June. And I was heading to my high school to meet my co-chairs. And I was so excited as anybody would be. And I remember walking to the co-chairs uh, classroom and it was a black woman and a white man. And I, I sit down and they get my curriculum. I'm like, oh, this is going to be so exciting. But I opened the curriculum and it's like 2002. And here it is now, 2011. So like we're almost 11 to 12 years. Curriculum has not been updated. Mm -hmm. And then I began to look at the text. It's like Jane Austen, uh, Great Gatsby, and um, Old Man in the Sea, and just all these old and canonical poets, but also like literary authors. And I was like, wait, this is this is what I'm this is what I'm getting. And then I look at the writing. It's like you know, having to write a paper connected to the Scarlet Letter, the Crucible. I'm like, wait, what is this? This is not how I want to teach. This is not what teaching should be for predominantly at a predominantly black and brown school. And but they were so excited to have to talk about those texts. They were so excited to talk about white mainstream English and teaching subject verb agreement and pronoun antecedent and teaching to the test. And I had freshmen. So my freshman had to take an end of course exam, which was 20% of their grade, their final grade for my class. So if they failed that exam, they could actually ultimately fail the class for the year which means they have to repeat ninth grade. And I was like, this is not the, work, the way to do it. And so I sat there and I know me, it's hard for me to hide my facial expressions. If I'm not feeling it, I, I know that people know it. I, I just know that. So something I try to work on, but look, it is, I am who I am. And I was so unhappy and very displeased. So I listened to them, what they're saying going, going through one and not the other. So when I get home, I relax. And then I take it in and I said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I really began to deconstruct my curriculum while building a new curriculum. And this was, once again, I haven't even taught officially yet, but I began to do it and I played around with it. And I began to add in, say, okay, if they want me to teach uh, Julius, uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a thematic, thematically. My thing will be Teenage Love Affair. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not about to have Shakespeare as my main text. He will be a supplementary text because in my mind, when you sit here and you uphold these canonical texts, you're still upholding whiteness in my mind. And most English language art classrooms are built around this white imagination where we still center and cater to whiteness. And Toni Morrison talked about the white literary imagination, how in those particular spaces, when we think about writing and reading, those things are centered in white ways of existing, being and speaking. And so I was really trying to push back against that. And so, yeah, I did bring in uh, Drake, Find Your Love. And I was like, oh, Drake uses metaphors. He's using similes. Okay, a metaphor is always a metaphor. A simile is always a simile. Those things never change. So I can use this text to teach these literary devices to my freshman students. And so I began to do that. I created like cool writing things they can do to, to think about this notion of teenage love affair. We talked about um, how gangs evolve. And Roman Juliet, you know, it's, it's this whole, it's the gang thing going on. So what does it mean to actually make it relevant to my students in a way and give them history and the truth telling that they don't receive and hear about like gangs, about like, you know, racial issues and still talking about Shakespeare. So think about like, what does it mean to really love somebody and even thinking about love. And so I think we have to begin to do that when it comes to teaching. I also didn't have the language around Black language, I wasn't calling it then. And of course, April began to really do that work and really thresh that term Black language out. So back in the day, I was calling it African-American language. And so once again, I found stuff online. I went to Google and Google was my best friend, still is, to be honest with you. Because I was Googling like, how do you teach uh, Shakespeare uh, like in a cool way, right? I was saying like in a cool way. And then you get all these examples of what teachers had already been doing. And so I'm like, oh, I can do a lesson on African-American language. And I began to do, do something on, I remember SVA, Search Verb Agreement, where I talked about how it looked in white mainstream English, but also how SVA looked within um, black language. So that's the type of teacher I was. And when those things happened, I did receive pushback from my department chairs. Could you imagine a 22 year old being in that space with people who have been teaching for 17 to 30 years and they're not doing what you're telling them to do? And they're pushing back and standing firmly in it? My principal was not happy with me. Neither were um, a lot of my colleagues, but it, in my mind, it wasn't about me. It was about those black and brown students who were sending those desks. It was about them. It was about the old Lamar who was a little boy who knew what it felt like to sit in the classroom where my language and humanity, literacy skills were not validated at all. So I was doing it for you know those people and for the future kids. It wasn't about my department chairs. It wasn't about those teachers and trying to make them like me.
I was trying to do it for my students and for myself. It's amazing. And what I'm curious, I mean, what was the push? What was the pushback like? Oh, Justice, I didn't even use the textbook. So, I, for example, I think so. I will say this: when I when I do this work, I think also when you just work around criticality and critical race English education, is also resistance work too. Sure, you have to figure out ways to to disrupt the system. If I'm building from the radical imagination, how do you begin to overthrow this current system? Doesn't mean I'm going to blow it up, literally. No. But how do I begin to blow it up in a metaphorical way while still being within these four walls of the school, to be honest with you? So for me as well, as when you're giving me my textbook and telling me to take my students to get their textbooks, I'm not about to give up my teaching time to take my students to get their textbooks that I'm not going to use. So I told my principal, in order to save her time and my time, we're not using the textbooks. And, she, and I was like, I'm not taking them. So I didn't take my first period class to get textbooks. But by the time I gained my third period class, she was like, look, you need to take and get your textbooks and just keep them in front of your classroom. And so that's what I did. And I only used them strategically because I knew that the end of course exam was going to be in a traditional way, the standardized way of testing our students, which did not connect to who they were as people. So like I said, I'll teach the literary devices through using, you know, Drake or other um other artists and other writers that the students could connect to. And I only used those textbooks to do like a quick little pop quiz that they knew about. Like, are we going to have a quiz on metaphors and similes on Wednesday? And I'm going to use, you know, your textbook to give you that quiz because when you take your end of course exam, that's how it's going to look. Granted, to teach you these little devices, I use these other texts, but also let's see how you do when they give you a text that you necessarily don't really connect to. How do you begin to maneuver that particular text? And just as my first year teaching, I had an 80% pass rate. My second year teaching, I had an 85% pass rate. And my last year teaching, I had an 89% pass rate. And I did, and I only, and I taught honors, but my honor students, I wasn't worrying about them because I understood that that was a little different. But most outside my one honors class, my other six to seven peers were all um, college prep. Technically, like you know, they were considered as your lower level in quote air quotes English classes. And so I was really up for a challenge. And but I was I was the man for that challenge. I learned a lot. I learned a whole lot. Did did the school? I have to ask. Did the school administrators, as your you know clear success rate improved, did they come around over time? She came around, but then it was more so also, okay, I'm coming around to your teaching strategies. But also, what comes along with this resistance. So because I'm teaching this way, if a student is being once again expelled. For a minor infraction, I'm not going to support that. So if you have me in a meeting to talk on behalf of a student in a negative way, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to get you to see how maybe this isn't the route we should go. Particularly because keep in mind, I'm teaching as a first-year teacher, but I'm also still in school too, working on my um, master's and doctorate degree too. So it's not like my classes are now cut off. It's now, oh, now I'm taking class on CRT as I teach. So as I learn about CRT and I'm teaching, I'm changing my teaching practice and strategies along the way. And so, and to, to answer your question, no, we didn't end on a good note because after she got used to me teaching this way, it was, I was also finding a voice as a teacher, sure. as a scholar, active, teacher scholar advocate to say like, well, I'm not gonna support you suspending this student because he went to the gym two minutes before the bell rang and he's on a basketball team. That doesn't make any sense. So it's just little stuff like that. So no, we didn't end on a good note, but I learned that once again, that it wasn't, about me, I'm doing this work for the greater good. And that's was, you know, our black and brown, black and brown babies. Yeah. Did you have, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of curious, were there other, was there a kind of network of support from other teachers? Uh, oh, yeah. You, so I had a few, were you working together to d disrupt in these ways? Not necessarily working together, but they respected me what, what I was doing. Yeah. They, they did. I have some teachers who had been teaching for, you know, once again, 15 years, they respect me as a first year teacher and what I was doing. But also some stuff I was doing was new to them, right? I'm trying to read and write a workshop model. When they went through their teacher ed program, they probably wasn't introduced to that type of right. structure. So that was new to them. And I understood that, but I just wanted them to stay out of my way. But I did have some support systems, but also I found a way to build my home outside of that high school. So I was still, like I said, in a graduate program. So I had like a team of people who I could go to, to talk to about these issues that would give me suggestions and advice. Um, and also I had friends who were also starting their first year of teaching too, who also went through the program with me. So I, I learned how to create my home within, but also outside of that space. Yeah. One of the, you, you've mentioned this a couple of times and I just want to invite you to sort of expand on it a little bit more because it's one of the things that for me as a reader was most um, m moving and kind of impactful about 
the book, but your, your emphasis throughout on the way a, a curriculum and pedagogical practices that center whiteness participate in various forms of violence yeah. beyond the physical. Uh, and you, you already have used the phrase, and I think this goes to um, Dr. Bettina Love, right? The, the phrase mm -hmm. of spirit murder. Right. Um, but you know, you, you're framing ELA, English language arts classrooms as spaces where violence is uh, perpetrated on a regular basis. And I wonder if you could just talk, talk us through that model. I know you go into it in some detail um, with you know, various kind of categories of the forms of violence that is inflicted on students in, in these spaces. Yeah, so when I wrote an article, co-wrote an article with some colleagues, my former dissertation chair, Dr. Gloria Bouti, and a colleague of mine, Nathaniel Bryant, who's at Miami University, but he also went to USC with me, University of South Carolina. We wrote a piece on um, about love. But when we talked about love, we also figured out how a lot of times people are teaching is not from a space of actual authentic, unconditional love, usually grounded in like this toxic love. And because a lot of times when people see ELA classrooms, they don't see the violence. They don't think it's a violent space. That's not what they hear. When they think about violence, they think about honestly the physical violence, right? Uh, well, I would never, you know, lynch a student. I would never say a racial epithet to a student. I wouldn't do that. And I get it. Some teachers probably wouldn't do that, right? But I'm thinking about other ways that we uphold whiteness in those spaces because it's so pervasive in those spaces. So I began to flesh out like, what are other ways that anti-Black racism become seeping to classroom spaces and become very violent. So we think about the curriculum we teach. When you give students curriculum where they don't see themselves reflected in it and it's culturally irrelevant to them, that does kill their humanity, their spirit. That is the curricular violence that actually happens. When you choose pedagogies, once again, that don't reflect your students' lived experiences and realities and their culture and ways of life and ways of being, that's pedagogical violence. When we think about telling students, well, this is why you should speak this particular way and upholding white mainstream English, and we're always correcting their black language, or we're telling them that black language is, you know, broken, is broken English, you know, that kills their humanity once again in spirit. They don't, they fell out, they fall out of love with writing, out of love with reading, don't want to speak out in the classroom or in public. That's linguistic violence. Once again, that kills their humanity, their spirit. Even we think about uh, the systemic violence, when we think about our policies and practices and procedures with zero tolerance, the school to prison uh, nexus and pipeline, um, overrepresentation of students and special education courses, those things also is violent to our students, it's systemic violence. So I argue that those type of violent acts are still connected to the physical violence that happens in the street. Those things bleed to classroom spaces. But let's be clear, physical violence are also happening it's also happening in school spaces too. We have issues where, once again, like in New Mexico, a little black girl took an extra carton of milk from the cafeteria and she was actually slammed to the ground and arrested. That's, that is ridiculous to me. So we do see the physical violence happening in these spaces because we also know that the school to prison nexus is connected to the prison industrial complex. And we have teachers in these, in these school spaces policing and over surveilling black bodies and black lives just like we have people in the polices in the street actually over surveilling um black lives so we see the criminality of blackness happening both inside and outside the classroom and so i argue that you know in, in black language in the black community so i said that the block is hot and when we say the block is hot that means that you know the police officers are in your neighborhood and they're literally up to no good and so i also believe that you know hey the block is hot in classroom spaces too there are teachers in those classroom spaces who are there to actually surveil and over police black bodies and they're not there to do us any favors. And it just me being real with myself, but also with others, because I've seen it. I've seen it on a daily basis, teaching high school for, you know, four years, but also going through the, the K-12 system for 18 years and then going to college. So I understand what the criminality of Blackness looks like um, in ELA classrooms, inside and outside. Mm. Yeah. How... I'm just thinking about you know the experience you were just describing before in 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 your you know your first year teaching high school and those moments where you were called to participate in you know some form of like a disciplinary hearing and obviously this is precisely part of what you're talking about when you're when you're talking about the school to prison nexus and and this kind of disciplining and surveilling of black bodies in in these spaces but how do you as a as a sort of as a teacher um, resist that 
kind of disciplinary and surveilling imperative or pressure. I mean, it sounds like you just were forced to say, I'm not doing it. And there's just a kind of like, I'm simply opting out and saying no, but I'm sure it's much, it's, it's more, more complicated than that because not, not everyone can always do that or say no in those ways. It is difficult. And what I tell my, so when I, when I teach my pre-service teachers, when I'm giving uh, any talks with, you know, in-service teachers or faculty and staff, I tell them that this is, this is resistance work. There are many ways to disrupt. And, but also I know me, this was Lamar before I was a teacher. Like as a child, I was going to be the one to like resist. If I didn't believe in something, if I felt like, okay, what's right is right, what's wrong is wrong. And I think that's just me as a person. So that's the other thing is like, who are you as a person? If you want the people who kind of like take the back seat and don't speak up, and you don't have to speak up all the time, but you don't, if you're afraid to speak up, then yeah, you probably will struggle with this. You will think that all, all I have to do is teach in this particular way in the classroom and it's okay. But the work, that's where it starts. It doesn't stop there. It goes beyond the classroom. And I think really to change the system, you have to push back. And that's part of the work. And I feel like, you know, when I read stories about Malcolm X, Journal of Truth, Dr. King, they were already doing this work. Our ancestors, that's who they were. That resistance is part of the Blackness. That's part of it. That Black joy, that Black love resistance is there. And so for me, that's part of who I am. So I teach my students about resistance and what that means to actually speak back through and against mm -hmm. academia, but also uh, K-12 school systems because they will be in spaces where they might have to speak up. Do you know how many times I've spoken to like teachers, just my first few years teaching, they're saying things like, oh, our students need to be around people like you because when they go home, they don't hear people speak in this particular way. You think I'm about to sit here and hear somebody say something like that to me when, one, I do speak black language. My parents, predominantly my family speak black language and I'm not about to let you disrespect you know, just disrespect me that way because I think you think you give me a compliment, but at the same time you disrespect me. Right. And so I have to speak back to that. And there are many ways to do it. Sometimes I will go and put um, articles in their boxes when they check the mailbox. So the next day they will see it. Sometimes I would disrupt it right then and there. Sometimes I would send an email. Hey, you know, think about the conversation we just had. Um, here's my thoughts about it. If you want to talk more about it, let me know. And usually when I did stuff like that, like put it in their mailbox and then send them emails like, hey, I put this in your mailbox. If you want to talk about it, let me know. They never talked about it. They never reached back out about it, which I'm not surprised, right? I know they wouldn't, but there are many ways to disrupt. You don't always have to, you know, yell or argue. I think there are many ways to do it. And it depends upon the context and the situation. Mm -hmm. So over time, I did learn that. There are many ways to resist in these spaces. Because the other thing is you cannot, sometimes talking to people like talking to like a brick wall. You have to know that, okay, you're not even on my level right now. Criti like criticality, you're not there. That yeah. consciousness that I have, you don't have. So because you haven't read some people I've read or actually have done the soul work, I'm not about to sit here and keep going back and forth with you because that's not good for my health and it could be very stressful. And so I'm not about to kill myself for you. So the most I'm going to do is I'm going to stop it right here, dead the situation here, but also I'm going to put this article about Gloria Lacks and Villains in your, in, your, in your box. So there you go. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, never stopping educating, even in, even in those moments when you're just kind of at your limit. Oh. Because I feel like, like I tell my students, I, when I was teaching my first year teaching, my principal said to me, well, you have to teach Roman and Juliet because when, when I want my students, when they go to dinner, to be able to sit down and talk to people and have a conversation about Shakespeare. And in my mind, all I saw was when they go to dinner to have, sit down with white people, you want to be able to talk about Shakespeare. That's all I heard. And so she and I had that conversation. It was just us in her office, but we had that conversation. But I couldn't leave her off without pushing back or saying like, well, what do you mean by that? Can you say more about that? Why do you feel like they need to read Shakespeare when he also was homophobic? He was also had like practice like racism and the sexism and classism. That was also Shakespeare's uh, work. If you go back and read it, it's there. But teachers weren't having those conversations with their students. They really privileged him as if if you didn't read Shakespeare, no Shakespeare, then you cannot, you know, you're not an English teacher, right? You're not a real English teacher. You're not a real writer. Yeah. It's such a, I mean, it's symptomatic and it's such a narrow and impoverished way and a familiar and narrow and impoverished way of thinking about, you know, what literature is for. And it seems like, you know, you're consistently speaking back to that idea through, you know, advocacy for various forms of culturally responsive pedagogy. 
Yeah. I mean, think about it. I keep my Roman Juliet. I feel like teachers, I learn how to be creative in particular ways. Like these comedy sketch shows, I love sketch shows. So seeing stuff like the Black Lady sketch show, HBO or Key and Peele, they have these Romeo and Juliet scenes where they reenact Romeo and Juliet. I'm like, this is stuff that people should actually use in their classroom when they're teaching, you know, these certain texts. But once again, for me, it's not about privileging Shakespeare. It's about like planning thematically. Right. Teenage love affair. And within this theme, I'm going to bring in these texts and put them in conversation with each other. So let's talk about how Walter Dean Myers, who wrote Street Love, which is a young adult novel, let's put him in conversation with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Where I'm not privileging Shakespeare, he's not my central text. Exactly. He's been centered in that way. He just integrated in that particular way. Yep. That's the key. Yep. Um, I want I want to shift the conversation a, a little bit, um, Lamar, and ask, and you've gestured to this in, in the way you describe um, the work of resistance in, in what you do, but but I couldn't help think about what it must have been like to write a book like this at the moment that you're writing it the particular moment in national history and kind of world history. And I'm wondering about the sort of shaping historical and political context over the last, you know, the, since you formally started writing the book, you know, around five years ago. So for example, I mean, and you talk about this in the book, but the emergence of Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. as a vital social and political movement. So what are the roles of some of these broader um, uh, an urgent social and political movements in shaping the work of the book? And, and was it difficult to write a book that was in some way so closely tied to, you know, these much larger scale um, political events? Yeah, that's a, that's a deep question. So I have a few things I wanna say to that. And the first thing I wanna say is, when I first started teaching, that's when Black Lives Matter was coined. Trayvon Martin was killed the weekend of my 23rd birthday. And when I went to school that Monday, we, used to, we always do celebrations every day to celebrate um, just good things going on in your life, either that weekend or the upcoming week, which you're looking forward to. And I had a student who, ironically enough, his name was also Trayvon, and he never celebrated. He's a very quiet uh, dude. He raised his hand, but it wasn't a celebration. He, was, he asked me a question, Mr. J, did you hear about Trayvon Martin? I did not hear about Trayvon Martin th that weekend. And so I meet, and the students like, yeah, it was wrong how they did him. Like, why did they do him like that? So I literally went to my computer because I also had my smart board up. So I typed in like CNN Trayvon Martin, something quick and it came up. And as I quickly, you know, trying to read and skim it as the students are still there, you know, talking about what's going on. And in that moment, I changed my lesson. I had to monitor and I had to adjust. And we literally talked about like, the killing of, of black males, but also black youth in general. We talked about, you know, stereotypes. And so, but in that moment, I had to go home when, it, when the day ended, you know, I went home and said, okay, how can I begin to rethink what I'm doing right now with my lessons, with my activities around being more centered around how to begin had this conversation around race and racism with my students, with these freshmen. I was already trying to make it, you know, creative and fun in a way. But how to begin to actually have these even more challenging and hard conversations. And so that pushed me. And so also during this time, I did my first protest. You know, after George Zimmerman got off that summer, I did my first protest. And I was like, and I remember feeling like I just had chills. I remember thinking like, it's sad we have to do this right now. I remember my, you know, grandparents and great aunts talking about this, but here we are. Right you know, right now marching because they're killing, you know, black and brown youth. And it seems to don't even matter, right? George Zimmerman got off and they didn't think that he did anything wrong. And I was really hurt by that. And so once again, I felt like, what is my commitment to this as a black male teacher? Because I also felt like what I saw in school spaces was not happening. And so I had to begin to rethink um, how do we begin to teach in our present day justice movement? The other thing is when we think about this particular present day justice movement, Blackness and our language and literacy practices are definitely much centered through the chants, um, through the ways we're speaking back. If you remember the uprising with uh, George Floyd a few years ago, people sometimes would even do the, the electric slide, they created these memes and gifs, because even in the chaos, right, we still find that love, that joy, those things always got us through. Still, 
pushing back, right? And still trying to center who we are in our humanity, but this is what blackness actually looks like. So I felt like I could not teach in our present day justice movement and not actually talk about these things within my research, my writing, my curriculum, pedagogical practices and decisions. I just couldn't do that because it was so personal to me. Moving to Cincinnati my first year, my first year being a professor, Michael Brown was killed. So I was five, five hours away from St. Louis. So I drove to St. Louis and I was in that space. And that space impacted me on a much deeper level. Actually being there and seeing like the memorial plots and then even like seeing like remnants of like Michael Brown's like blood on that ground. I mean, even now just saying that, I just like get chills to like, I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous because he didn't listen to an officer because he didn't get on the sidewalk when an officer actually scolded him like he cussed at him particularly when black culture when you don't know us you just can't cuss at us like that we will say something back and so just even thinking about that and how he should still be here today michael brown should still be here and so which is why in the book i wrote a love letter to michael brown and i really wanted to humanize him in ways because we hear about trayvon martin and michael brown and they say things like oh well they were doing these things in school right they were doing this that's still very much violent and anti-black racism but Michael Brown was a, a rapper. He was a writer. He was ready to go to college. I went to his SoundCloud and just to hear his voice, I'm just like, this is amazing. To hear his raps rapping about education, rapping about his family dynamics, talking about how his stepmom is his best friend. Um, these are things that we should have heard about when that was going on. How he has a song where he talks about the devil and how the devil, he compares the devil to white supremacy and whiteness. And when I read that and listened to it, I said, oh, this reminds me of Dr. David Stovall's piece, uh, Playing with the Devil 24-7, because he connects how whiteness and white supremacy, they, they are the devil. When it comes to like disinvestments in schools, oppression, marginalization, and the school-to-prison nexus, playing around with whiteness is like playing with the devil 24-7. And so I made those connections between Michael Brown and Dr. Stovall, and it was very humanizing. And one of my friends of mine, she told me, she said, you know, when Breonna Taylor passed away, she said, you need to go and look at Michael Brown's Twitter account. Listen to his music because we need to humanize these people outside of what we hear about them, you know, being like killed, like killed, basically. Because that's how we some that's how some of us actually know them. Like, oh yeah, she was killed at the hands of state-sanctioned violence. But what else about this person that actually humanizes them? And so I really want to do the work of actually humanizing Michael Brown. You do it so well. And I mean, this is a perfect segue to, to talking a little bit more about, about the form of the book. And I have to say, I mean, this, this is something that I, I really was impressed by, Lamar, how you handle, I mean, the, the, the innovativeness, the experimental quality of, of the book, you know, the way you interweave scholarship, meditation, autobiography, and you blend them in this way so that the autobiographical narrative also is a kind of practice of criticality. And it's just, it's totally amazing. Um, so I just, I wanted to ask a little bit, I mean, you mentioned the Michael Brown love letter, the second of three love letters in the book, but if you could just tell us a little bit about that. So there are, there are three love letters in this book. And you mentioned this a, a bit in the, in the, your response to the very first question, because you had been writing love letters at a, at a fairly early age. So tell us a little bit about that choice, that formal choice to have these three love letters and why were they organized the way they were and, and what did you hope to do with this? Oh, that's, my mind is like, because so, so many things happen to get into the love letters, honestly. <laughs> so many things, Justice, but I'll make this quick. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to write a book where my grandmother, my great aunts, my parents, my cousins, could pick up this book and actually understand it. Not just buy the book because, oh, my son wrote a book, but no, I actually read this book and I actually connect with it on a deep level. I wanted to understand why education, what happens in these school spaces. I think so often people believe that they, they put their trust in schools, right? I believe that you will do what you say you will do, you know, and really serve the students. And I'm like, okay, education can be beautiful, but it also can be a not so beautiful thing too. And I also want to do write in a way where they actually, where I actually infuse storytelling, research, methodology, and practice in a way where once again, they could pick it up and actually understand it. And so that was the challenge to myself. And for me, when I'm writing, I like to think that I'm in a studio, like a rapper or a singer, and I'm working on my album. So to me, this book is my album. 
and those chapters are my tracks. So it's very strategic. Every word matters in this book. The, the table of contents, those titles matter because it. I want my readers to be hooked with the titles, but also the first sentence in each chapter. Those sentences were actually vetted intentionally. I want the sentence to be hot to actually grab my readers. So it made my job even more challenging. I could have written this book in a year if I, if I had just wrote a traditional academic book, but that's not what I wanted to do. And even when I wrote this book, once again, when you listen to albums, right, you have people have interludes between the actual tracks, the songs. And so uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr. April Baker Bell and I, we were talking and I was like, I need some interludes. And so I, we talked about interludes, like what they look like. And then I got my reviews back from the editors and she and I talked through it. And so my chapter, The Love Letter to My Dad, it was actually part of my chapter one about the prison industrial complex. And she was like, that should be its chapter by itself. It should be its own separate little interlude. And I was like, yeah. So she was like, maybe it's like a love letter. And I was like, that's exactly what it is. It's a love letter. I'm writing love letters. So we sat down. I was like, well, I wrote one to my dad. That's already pretty much done. I'll revise it again, but it's pretty much done. So I said, well, I'll also write a love letter to my neighborhood, Promised Land, where I grew up. And I also write a love letter to Michael Brown to actually humanize him. And so I disperse those love letters throughout as to several little interludes through the chapters, because I think also this book is not only about the anti-Black racism. This is also about loving on Blackness mm. and loving Blackness to life and loving, not loving Blackness to death. I wrote an article about loving Blackness to death, but what it means to actually love Blackness to life when you just love the hell out of Blackness. But I think we have to redefine what Blackness actually means, right? Blackness is more than skin hue. Blackness is, you know, women, boys, girls, people of the LGBTQIA plus community. Blackness is across the African diaspora. Um, blackness is beautiful, it's joy, it's love, it's fierce, it's aggressive, it's peaceful, it's magical, it's dope, it's limitless. Blackness is all those things. And I, that's what I want to show people in this book. Like, don't get it twisted. This is not just about racial violence. This is also about seeing the beauty and the, the poker too, like, you know, in Blackness. And that's what I wanted to do. And so, but in order to write this book, I was grieving. I mean, three people passed away while I was writing this book. So the book, once again, could have been done a few times before that, but every time someone passed away, it reshifted how I saw the book, honestly. And so once again, the first person was my dad. And so when he passed away, it really impacted, once again, how I wrote the book and how I saw him. So I talk about my relationship with him growing up and how, you know, he wasn't necessarily present in my life the way I wanted him to be because of the prison, prison industrial complex. But I was so in my feelings and I did not fully forgive him. And it impacted my relationship with him as an adult. Even when I'm talking about loving on blackness and teaching students about loving black people, predominantly white people about loving black people, but here I am not fully loving my dad. And like I said in the book, partial liberation is not full liberation. And so I had to practice the art of forgiveness. What does it mean to really forgive and let go and release it? Because what I noticed was I said I had forgiven him, but I did not forget. And so when you forgive that, what, is, what does that forgetting, what does the forgetting look like? I think people will say, oh, forgive and forget, but oh, it's hard to forget. And what does it mean to actually forget? So I feel like if something, if something is said and it's triggering me in a particular way, then I have not probably really dealt with it like I probably should have and really for, fully forgiven him. So I had to do that deep soul work of forgiving my dad. And I fully forgiven him when I, when, I wrote, uh, when I wrote the book. I did because I had to really go in places that I didn't want to go, um, but I had to be really vulnerable. I think that's all part of being blackness and pushing back against the ego and how we see the ego. And I had to go to a space where I had to validate my own emotions and feelings. I think so often in life we learn that you have to hide your feelings or downplay your feelings. If you do, it's a sign of weakness. But for me, in those moments where I feel like I'm very vulnerable, that's also the moment, my strongest moments too. And so in those love letters, I was able to pour my heart out, be honest, be authentic, but also give you Lamar. We write articles and books all the time, and we don't even know who the author is. Like, okay, you're a professor, you're a writer, but okay, who are you though? How do you come to this work? And I feel like I didn't want to do my readers a disservice by like staying out of it. I want it to be in the book from the beginning to the end. And I want people to know like, okay, this is who Lamar is. You didn't get all of me, but you saw glimpses of my attitude. How I'm kind of like, I'm talking my trash, right? This, this is how I'm going to say this, which I was going to see like, okay, the softer side of him. And then the comedic side, because toward it, when I end the book on spiritual literacies, 
I talk about when a student told me your breath is going to stink because you're eating sour cream and onion chips <laughs> and just how mad I got because I felt like I was embarrassed. But then she was real. This is serious. Like, you know, breath literacy is very important. You cannot eat certain stuff without having like gum <laughs> next to you. <laughs> when you're teaching freshmen, oh, and you're talking to them and they, you know, you, you got to ask a question, they got to be in their face. Yeah, your breath has to be on point, Justice. And so <laughs> I thought in that moment, I kicked her out. I was like, you know, get out of the class. And, I, and the whole time I'm thinking, you know she's right. You, you know she's right. Because I was already laughing in the inside, but I was just so hurt and so embarrassed. So when I started to talk to her about it, I was like, why would you even send her to the office right now, right? We can say, oh, she's disrupting class. They were taking, doing their bill work. But why go through that whole process of having her, you know, kicked out of school for a day or two or in school suspension? For what? It's true what she was said to you. But I feel like if I didn't have even that criticality in that moment, right, to even do that, it, it could have gone other ways. Granted, I just also probably should not have kicked her out of class either. But once again, <laughs> I was in my, I was in my feelings, but I had to really be open and admit that. So in the book, I don't want people to think like, oh, you just was this perfect little teacher. No, I was not. I made mistakes. And I also want people to know that too, but I can go back and admit and be honest about them because I'm also trying to be a very spiritual person. And I couldn't do the work of spiritual literacy and the rebirth and the critical faith and the mindfulness if I didn't go back to certain moments and actually reevaluate them. I had to. And, and the student and I, we're so close to this day. She just texted me last week saying, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, I'm so proud of you. Look at us. Who would have thought back in 2011 we would be where we are right now? Now you are a news anchor on TV. I'm out here in LA writing books. I'm a professor. We never, they didn't see that for me when I was, you know, it's like, oh, you were, you know, but now it's like, no, I'm, I'm really, I'm proud of you. So just even how, even that side of me, I really want to show my readers, like, this is who Lamar actually is. Yeah. I mean, I, I will just say, and I know we're almost out of time, but um, for, for, for this reader, I mean, it was extraordinary. They were extraordinarily moving, Lamar. And you just, you get a, a tremendous sense of you as an individual, as a human being, uh, really remarkably well done. You handled it so well. And I was I was so impressed by your decision to choose to lead with the love letter to your father and, and to describe the way that the process of writing that letter was therapeutic and spiritual and, and humanizing. It, it was a deeply moving um, choice. So thank, thank you. you for that. I, I thought we might end with the, the first meditation that you offer in the book. And if I could just invite you to to say a little bit more about that. This is, yeah. you must love blackness as a precondition to humanity. Yeah, yeah. So I first heard something similar to this by Dr. Joyce King and Dr. Gloria Boutique when I took a course with them about African diaspora literacy. And that really stuck with me. Before you even could be fully human, you have to love on blackness and love black people. Because if you don't love blackness, and if I don't love myself, I'm not fully human. And so if, you, if you're teaching black students and you don't love their language, if you don't love their literacy skills that they bring to the classroom, if you don't love their experiences, if you don't love, people love black culture, but don't love black people, then you're not fully human. And so the question is, what does it mean to stay human in the 21st century? Or what does it mean to stay human in, 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 in general? And so we have to love blackness. And I think about how loving blackness is revolutionary and you can't have a revolution without love and you can't have love without blackness well on that note that amazing final note lamar thank you so much for this conversation congratulations again on the book and uh, i hope the book launch goes really well yes i'll keep you posted thank you jess I really okay. enjoyed the conversation. great to have the conversation take yes. care all right bye bye-bye Thanks again all for your tuning into another episode of Prerequisites, your guide to the thriving research culture of the Department of English at MSU. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. A special note of thanks to Zach Cruzy and Daniel Trego for their work in the production of the Prerequisites podcast. Be well. Mm -hmm.